Well, we are starting a new section this morning after spending six months on the inheritance, it seems like. <laughs> but it's, these are important things. And uh, so, anyway, you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, the Testament book of Colossians. In that book, uh, we are now looking at a section that focuses on the person of Christ. Um, nothing hardly that I can think of comes close to the importance of knowing him, knowing about him, uh, appropriating him. That is the biggest struggle in my life. It really truly is that he would be first because, you know, the world is there and it's attractive and it just draws us away. And it's so easy to waste time on things that we really like to do rather than invest time in him. And uh, I know that that, that is just, uh, I'm not happy with my life. I'm not happy how it goes. I struggle with that, to be honest with you. And uh, yet I know that he is merciful and gracious. And I know that he is the sovereign of the universe, the Lord of glory, the savior. And uh, we are very, I'm very thankful for him and for the privilege that is, that is mine uh, to, to know him and uh, to follow him, to seek to follow him. So uh, Paul is writing, He's, he is in prison in Rome, and he has uh, now been brought to the place of writing to that little gathering of believers in the town or the city of Colossae. Uh, and uh, he is, he is um, concerned for the things that are going on because that church is in a realm of darkness. So the church is like this, this uh, small group of believers. They're a light uh, in the midst of a dark world, a world that is infested with all kinds of, of uh, pagan ideas. And the believers there uh, in that little church are being bombarded with a lot of opinions. It's easy for us to gain opinions. And uh, we have our opinions and we happen to think our opinions are pretty well established and sound and logical. But really, our opinions really mean nothing compared to the truths of God's word. And so Paul is writing and he's uh, he's rejoicing in the good news that the people in Colossae have responded to the gospel so that a small church has formed. And Paul rejoices uh, in his prayers, giving thanks and making requests for the growth in the ministry of that church because he's concerned for it. That concern for the church is a concern that we all have. I have too. I wish my concern was greater. I wish that the Lord would give me a passion so great and so deep that I could think of nothing or do nothing else. It's easy for me to be sidetracked. It's easy for me to look at, at the other things. And uh, like yesterday, I didn't spend much time in it, but I was thinking about football and stuff like that. You, you like things like that, or I should say, I like things like that. And it's easy to be for me to be distracted with trivia instead of really the, the real important things. So here's this little church surrounded in the, uh, by a kingdom of darkness in which there are many conflicting opinions that are regarding about the person and the work of Christ. And when we have our opinions, we think our opinions are the most accurate and uh, probably the best uh, view of things. But yet there are a lot of these opinions that were not accurate and that they needed to be held in, in uh, contrast to what God says, because that, his word, is where we know God speaks. We, we know his word is truth, not our opinions about his word or our opinions about Jesus. And so this is important. Paul wants to inform these believers, these 
keeping his logic of the truth to dispel the darkness of ignorance and superstition. By the way, superstition um, can be defined as beliefs and principles and actions which are based on ignorance. Whereas faith, which we follow, is beliefs and principles that are based upon revelation from God. And his truth is worth following. Paul covers some of these most significant teachings about Christ uh, or the incorrect teachings about Christ. And he's, we are privileged to learn what the great apostle says this morning. And so that's what we are going to be focusing on. The conflict in Colossae was that men's ideas were being elevated to a point uh, equal to scripture. And uh, even the most educated men, that's never a good idea to do that. We learn from that. Uh, we, we study a lot, for example, John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul and other men that are giants, but they get their opinions from the word and they go back to the word and they always, it's always, you analyze these things according to what the word says. We can learn from them, uh, but we don't take their opinions and hold them in a position equal to the word. We, we listen to them because we believe that they are pointing us to the word and explaining these, these things. So as a result, Paul writing them, as a result, they were, these uh, opinions that developed were attacking things like the humanity of our Lord, saying that Jesus was one of several descending spirits, uh, descending in sequential inferiority from the Father down to the Son. So that you have the Father, then you have these different spirits, and finally come to the bottom, which is the Son, Jesus, and uh, that Jesus is one of these descending spirits. Now, that's a crazy thing, but when you, you know, it took about uh, 300 years. For the church to really settle the deity of Christ in itself. I mean, you know, it's a fundamental doctrine. And when you think about it, if you don't, if you're not raised in church, and you don't, um, you, you didn't take a class on theology, if all you had was the Bible, and you sat down, and you, you heard the message about Jesus and stuff, it takes a while to formulate those doctrines and cross-reference them and begin to develop the truth. Um, even whether as the Spirit of God works, we want to compare, and so that's what that's what we do. Can you defend the doctrine of the deity of Christ and things from the Scripture by yourself, or do you use things that you've learned from others or scriptures? You see what I'm saying? It's important to be able to do that. So uh, these these opinions that uh, had developed, some of them were kind of sort of weird. Uh, these descending spirits um, that Jesus had come down from the Father. In addition, there was a confusion regarding um, his physical nature versus the spiritual nature of our Lord. The issue can be described as a type of philosophical dualism, which is the word that you've heard used in this area, teaching that the spirit was good and the, that matter was evil. This is real. That they, they thought about that. And in a way, we can understand that because we know we focus when we when we uh, talk about following the Lord, we know that the flesh, which is physical, draws us away and interrupts our focus and gets us distracted, whereas we, we talk about the spirit and the work of the spiritual and we kind of elevate that. But this can this can go to the point where you have the two cannot coexist and you'd say the physical is bad and the spiritual is good and therefore the person of Jesus, for example, his resurrection which brought him up to a physical body, something that's not logical, because how can you justify taking a good man like Jesus and putting him in a physical body that was contaminated, you see? That's just this, this deduction that's, that's not logical. And so Paul is dealing with some of these things, and these issues, of, these opinions affected their view of resurrection. And, and uh, so 
Some of the mystics in, the, in this unchristian realm of darkness doubted whether Christ was indeed adequate for providing salvation for man, and they, they questioned the, suffici the sufficiency of the gospel, that the gospel was enough. And they said that uh, they kind of lacked the spiritual power and insights, which they themselves, who are teachers, claim to provide with their secret wisdom and their secret knowledge. But that's one of the reasons why I think uh, Paul stresses in this section here, the full knowledge, experiential knowledge, because it's experiential knowledge from God. It's his word and his truth. And that's a very important thing to recognize. And so they, these, uh, these uh, leaders were obsessed with keeping the Jewish ceremonial laws. They were honoring angels and spirits and things like that. There's always, you see, when, there's always confusion when you start getting away from the scripture, when you start thinking about other things, trying to reason uh, the sovereignty of God, the greatness of God in your own mind without going to the revelation of God. It, it, it gets sort of contaminated. So all of these things were a serious departure from the truth and is really nothing more than pagan speculations that flow out of the realm of darkness. Uh, it's a satanic purpose to undermine the church and its message and believers in it and to weaken the effect of the gospel by distorting the doctrine yeah. of the person, the, the doctrine of the person and work of Christ. So in this book, Paul seeks to correct these errors and points us to a sufficient savior yeah. who is Drop the Lord of heaven and earth. And he wants us to turn from the kingdom of darkness and to embrace the kingdom of light. So I, you have a bulletin there and you have the outline on the back and the two main parts there, there's a pathway to glory. I'm going to look at basically that is primarily a read through review of where we were and then the place of glory, which is the new section that we're going to be looking at. The pathway to glory, I'm trying to give an outline and mention three things in that pathway. One is Paul's petition. Two is Paul's purpose, and three is Paul's praise. The petition there uh, is is just stating what his will is, his desire for the saints there in the church. He says that for this reason, since the day we heard, have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled. Here it is, with the full knowledge of his will. He wants the church to be filled with the full knowledge of his will. Think about what that means. Uh, what are you doing, Full experiential knowledge of God's will. He's asking that the Lord do that. So this is knowledge that's going to come from God through the work by the Spirit, and he wants them to have this experiential knowledge. But it's not just knowledge that just goes out. It's knowledge that's confined into the area of wisdom and understanding. He wants them to have a full knowledge of wisdom, which is what? It's the ability to handle life. All right? If we have wisdom, if we function in, in wisdom, we are handling life in a way that is wise. And knowledge is the ability to take what we know and work it together intelligently so it's accurately producing what God wants. It's logical. It's related to the word logic. Those two things, wisdom and knowledge that he's praying for, are modified by one word, and that is the word spiritual. So he's praying that they have spiritual wisdom, and spiritual knowledge. So these are things in the realm of the spirit, in the realm of the church, that he's wanting them to have understanding. So that's his petition. Then his purpose, which is a reading through of verses 10 and 11, uh, he's praying these things so that he says to the church, you may first of all walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
your life needs to display uh, a walk that reflects the greatness of your Savior. I have to ask you that question. Does your life do that? Does my life do that? Does my life reflect the greatness of my Lord who died for me? Or does my life reflect that I've gone off my own trip, which too often, I'm afraid it does. I have my own things, my own agenda. I know what I want to do when I get up in the morning. I start thinking, what am I going to do today? And do I want to go down to the store and do this? Or do I want to watch that? Or do what I want to eat for breakfast? You see what I'm saying? We've got a lot of things that come on our minds. But I want my life, I want my life to exalt, to pursue, to love, to acknowledge, and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want him, and I want him alone to be the real substance of my passion, my life, my walk. I want that. It's not that. It's not even close to that, but that's what I want. You understand what I'm saying? And so I think that's important. So here he says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him, so which is something that you never did uh, before the Lord changed your heart. You, you live, and so did I, to please yourself. I always did that. You did too. And, uh, but he says, I want you to have this wisdom, this worthy walk to please him. Secondly, to bear fruit in every good work so that in everything you do, be thinking about what can I do to serve you. I think about this a lot. The Lord said, in as much as you have done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And there's so many things we can do and then do this for Jesus, do it for the Lord, to please him. A lot of things we can do. And I'm afraid so often we don't ask those things. We don't look for those things because we have to go out of our way. Takes a little extra work, but it's so worth it. If you can do that for the Lord, it's so worth it. And it's a testimony that God uses. Then thirdly, not only bearing fruit in every good work, but increasing in the full knowledge. That's the same <coughs> phrase, experiential knowledge. Increasing in the experiential knowledge. As you're growing and you're being fruitful, you want to be applying those things and increasing in that knowledge in your Lord. And then fourthly, as you're increasing in that knowledge, you want to be strengthened to enable you to do that, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious power, strengthened. And that's what Paul is, is giving here is his purpose, that the church is to be uh, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing good fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with power, and attaining or reaching or making progress unto all steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness is uh, for the word that you could call endurance, um, and that means endurance with things that come in your life that are a pain, that are hard to do. Um, and then the second word there has that's translated in my Bible, patience is the word for long suffering. So he's saying, I want you to attain all uh, steadfastness and endurance or patience and endurance. Patience is patience with things and long suffering basically is patience with people. And we have to have both of those things. We run into things that are obstacles and difficulties that come up, flat tire, uh, the store closes and I can't get down there what I need, or the electric, the power is out, or all kinds of things that wants us to be patient with that. The well doesn't work. Uh, those are things that, that we need patience with. But then you have people. Sometimes people are even worse than, than things because the people, the person that's driving real slow in front of you, that you're in a big hurry and they're... I don't know why I always picked on that, but uh, <laughs> I know that that's an issue. So anyway, and then the last thing is joy, joyous. And we think that's just a little nothing, but it's not just a little nothing. Fun and joy are not the same thing. 
we pursue things in life um, to have fun, but it doesn't produce joy. Joy is a byproduct of our pursuit of the Lord and living for him and serving him. And that is what overflows. And that's where the real testimony comes. That's why people will ask you, what is the hope of you? Is the reason for the hope in you? It's because of the joy that's overflowing because of the walk of the Lord. So that's the second thing. So we see Paul's petition for, for them to have the school knowledge and the purpose that's overflowing. And then the praise there uh, says he, he's giving thanks to God for one reason. God has qualified these saints to share in the inheritance. That is not something that we possess. That is not something that exists for us. That we're not just qualified in ourselves. We're not just qualified because of our birth. We're not just qualified because we happen to have a, a good lineage. We're qualified because God has made us sufficient. And he uses the term that's used for real estate to, to share uh, in the portion of the inheritance for the saints in light. Remember, these saints are in a dark area. There's a lot of darkness going around. So he's made qualified the saints to walk uh to share in their portion, their in the Old Testament land was given out by lot, and that's what the word inheritance means, allotted. So it's kind of a play on words here that they they, they are allotted a portion of the inheritance that God has given to them uh, among the saints who are in light, in the kingdom of light, in the kingdom of Christ. We're made sufficient to inherit that. Notice also in verse thirteen, uh, who rescued us from the authority, which is. I think most of our translations say dominion of darkness, uh, but you can probably just put that down as the kingdom of darkness. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about being rescued from the kingdom of darkness and uh, have an inheritance in the kingdom of light. So you've got these two kingdoms, you've got these two realms. We're in that kingdom now. We're in that realm now, the kingdom of light. And hopefully we are saints of light here and that the light shines around us and stuff. But there's a lot of darkness going on. I talked to my... Um, and uh, Sally Ray, she's up in her 90s now, yesterday on the phone. She called to thank me for the Christmas card. And uh, she appreciated my prayers and stuff. And uh, she's there and she said that God is so good to her. And the family really just, they, they come around all the time to take care of her and love her. She's, they're, 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 it's a good family. They're good people. And they really love her. And uh, she said that she's, she's so happy and she's so thankful to the Lord. And she feels like she's kind of protected because you watch the news and you see all the darkness and the discouragement and the distractions and, and just violence going on around you. But you are surrounded in this little area, cocoon, with all the family and everything around you to protect you. That's kind of what it is with us. God does protect us. And so he says, goes, tells us that we have been transferred. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his son or the son of his love. Transferred means that we've been moved from the kingdom of darkness and the realm of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And uh, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins through him. That through him, the kingdom of his, the kingdom of his beloved son or the kingdom of the son of his love forces Paul now to turn to the one who has provided that. And that's Jesus. Son of his love. So that's where we're going to look in. And that's what we're going to look at now. And uh, I'm going to read verses 15 through 19. And obviously we're not going to get through that whole thing, but we're going to start. Verse 15, I'm talking about this one um, who is the, the, the one who has provided the forgiveness of our sins, who is the son of his love or the beloved son, son only begotten son. Uh, this one, he says in comment, who is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. You can see from these verses already that he, Paul is really trying to attack all these mystical opinions of Christ being an emanation or that his physical and spiritual can't coexist together in, in one body and stuff. And so Paul wants us to know that here is one who is totally God. He is sovereign. He is the absolute creator. We'll start there with the discussion about Christ being the image of God. It's the word icon, which in the Greek, which means likeness. Um, we get our English word icon from it. Not Christ is not a series of emanations, but he is the exact likeness of the Father. Um, there are several places in the New Testament where that word is used. One of the big ones uh, is in Matthew twenty-two twenty. This is a parallel verses in Mark twelve sixteen, where we read. Um, Jesus is asking the Jews, the Jews are there trying to trip Jesus up and saying, is it lawful to, to give to Caesar or not? They're trying to trick him up because he knew that no matter how he answered, the enemies of that particular uh, position would jump on him. And so it would, it would put him on the horns of a dilemma that they didn't think he could come out from. Well, Jesus, that's a dangerous thing to do with Jesus. They asked Jesus that and he turned to them and said, well, I tell you what, you bring me a denarius to look at. Right, that, that, so they go get Denarius to look at, and then when they brought it to him, he says, now, whose, and he uses the word image, whose image or likeness or inscription is on it? Of course, they say it's Caesar. Then he tells them, if the Caesar thinks that the Caesar is God, thinks that are God. But the question is, whose likeness is on That's the word image. And that's what, that, that, uh, what it refers to, and that's what Jesus here says in this passage that he is, or in the writer here says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now we know that scripture says that man is created in God's image. And so does this mean that the two are the same, the same thing? Well, no, it does not. Uh, man is created in God's image uh, like God is a rational, creature he possesses intellect emotion will we both do we are able to think and feel and act and god is too so that's the similarity between man and god there are things remember rc Sproul did a series series saying that that man is like god there is a we have to have that otherwise we wouldn't be able to understand god but because there are similarities in the way that we understand life and we put together intellectually and thinking and able to see and hear and speak we can understand those kinds of things and so there is that sense there in which a man is like god um, but there's also a sense in which god is far above man and that we're not like him man is not in god's image morally we are sinful god is holy 
we are limited by knowledge, by strength, although sometimes we think we have all knowledge. We're limited by our knowledge, by our strength, by our weak power. We're limited by location. We vacillate and decay. Uh, and yet God, in the opposite of that, is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, uh, unchanging. Uh, in, doesn't move or vacillate. We can make promises to meet somebody or do something, but then we can go out and do it in a car, have a flat tire, or not start battery dead. I've had that happen. And all of a sudden, you just, you're not able to function. Do you realize real quick that when God makes a promise, he can keep it. There are no exceptions. It's always there. It's always dependable. But we have to kind of tack on to that little phrase, I'll meet you that nine o'clock, Lord willing. Because we can't guarantee it. Only God can do that. And uh, we are limited. God is unlimited. But in the, the, uh, the picture here, uh, when we talk about the image of God, we're talking about that Christ is deity like God. He is, he is the same as the same nature and everything as God the Father. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, 7, it says, For man ought not to have his head covered, since man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So here is a picture that says that man is created in the image of God. But what it's doing is it's just saying that he is the image and that he is the head of the headship in the family, just as God does. And so it's, a, it's an important distinction. And uh, Jesus um, is, God's, is God. He's God in, in, in very substance. He's, when he, he, said, he says, um, think about it, he says, um, is the image of the invisible God that carries with it the idea that God is invisible, that God cannot be seen or uh, because he's a spirit being, and yet Jesus is God. And he said that in, in many places in the scripture. He said that in the upper room discourse where he told Philip when Philip was saying, how do we know where to go and what is the father like? And Jesus said, have you been with me so long, Philip, and you not known me? He that, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Now that's John 14, 9. And uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing. In John 1, 14, another passage that speaks of Jesus as being God in flesh. It says the Word became flesh. And you know that verse, John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, set up his tent, have these thoughts as I'm going to work down there at Lowe's that there are these people that have started setting up tents down there by the river. They, I don't know how they do that or how they survive, but they're, they're, I don't know if they're tent people, but they're sort of like it in San Francisco. You have this, you got, I bet there's 15 or 20 places where you have people that go into the wood by the stream there, set up a tent to live there. Well, the Lord in that, that kind of, sense has left the realm of glory the majesty of glory and he's come down here and he's walking among us he's he's uh tabernacle here and that's what it says in john 14 the world uh, was made flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacle among us with the result that john writes this we beheld the beheld means to behold not just something casually but you're holding something beholding something that is 
really something to see. It's like it's like having your breath taken away with a beautiful sunset or sunrise or standing on the cliff of, of the Grand Canyon and just looking at that vista and appreciating it. John says that's kind of what we are. We, we beheld his glory. His glory is contrast. His glory is majesty. His glory is greatness, his awesomeness. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the uniquely born from the Father, full of grace. The truth. Now, those two words, grace and truth, when I was doing my Christmas letter and the Christmas card, I began to look at that and I all of a sudden realized that those two aspects talk about the kind of the dual revelation of Christ when he came. Um, John 1 17 says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, which confirms that, that grace and truth are a revelation of him. Um, grace, Titus says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What does he mean by that? He's talking about Christ. Christ from God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And he words that by saying that coming of Christ is called the grace of God. But we also know that Christ didn't just come to display God's grace, but he also came to communicate. That's what Hebrews said. God who at sundry time in diverse manner spoken to the fathers through the prophets and us. Through his son. And so here is the and he is both the Place of God in his personal coming and the communication, because the word is that vehicle of communication. That's why in Hebrews he is saying that he is the communication of God. So that Jesus of himself to us, as well as the communication of his word to us. Does that make sense? He is both the revelation from God and the revelation of God. So when you see the point I tried to make, not very clearly, but in that letter, you look at the manger and you see that baby, realize God is himself and he's speaking to us. He's communicating to us. God's been into this words for me to describe my relationship with Jesus is the word intrusion. Because he does intrude in every area of life. And especially if those are areas that I kind of want to have left alone. He, would, he won't leave them alone, for which I'm very thankful. Yeah. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. And so um, here is the Lord. He is the visible expression, if you will. Uh, the text just simply says, Talking about him saying, uh, using the I, the word for icon, that he is the image of, or the icon, if you will, the image of God, the invisible God, seen. he is the visible image of God. And so these people that are teaching that there's some kind of emanation or some kind of situation where the flesh is evil and the spirit is good, have to deal with this, that Paul is saying, no, 
the one that is here, he is the visible, the very visible expression. He said, handle me and see flesh and bone does not exist. Like this is me, I have real flesh and I have come and I'm here. We have a wonderful savior. We have a wonderful savior and he is great. He's majestic and he's holy. And he's one more thing we're going to just real quick and I won't take for just a moment. And that is not only is he the image of, of God, but he is also the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn, that protocos means the first to be born and uh, should not be, and is, it, it, he's the first to be born and should be defined by the context how it's used because Jesus, we know Jesus was born, but we're not saying that he was born like everybody else and he was born like everybody else, but he was a unique birth. And in the scriptures, you'll find but sometimes that word firstborn does mean just a normal birth. That's the way it's used to Mary when it says she gave first gave birth to her firstborn son. And after his father goes, that's what it means, that he was the first one <coughs> to be born. But there are many areas, and most of them in the Old Testament, where a family, when they have a firstborn son or a son that they that is the firstborn, is one that has a double portion of the inheritance, is one that's chosen and uh, is chosen to kind of carry the family title and the name and the property and everything like that. It was a real honor and a real privilege. And that's what it means here that of all creation, the one that's born that is the most significant without any controversy is this one. Of all the people born, of all the people that have come, it's the primary uh, meaning here with him. In that culture, the firstborn was the son who had the right of inheritance. And you remember, it doesn't necessarily mean the firstborn was born first. In the case of Esau and Jacob, it was not. Jacob was born first, but Esau was the one that God said, you're, you're going to give the inheritance to him. You're going to reverse him. That's right. So that, that's just, and that's God's choice. He knows what he's doing. He never makes a mistake. And so that's a good thing. And so it, that's what it means here. Several passages that talk about, the, and elevate this point, for example, in Psalm 89, just a couple of verses, Psalm 89 says, I also shall make him my firstborn. And he's talking about him. He's talking about the Messiah. God says, I shall also make him my firstborn. How does that affect him? Well, the verse goes on to say, the highest <coughs> of the kings of the earth. So what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to make the Messiah my firstborn. He's going to be the highest of the kings. He's going to be the Lord of lords and the king of kings. He's going to be the highest. In Revelation uh, 1 5, there's another verse that's a little bit confusing, and that is that it talks about Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, the firstborn of the dead, he's talking about the resurrection. And uh, he, is, he is going to be the firstborn, the prioritized one, the highest one to be resurrected, even though there were some that were resurrected in his crucifixion. This is the one that is the priority. He's the highest. He's the logical uh, inheritance, if you will, the logical seed of David, the one that is the reign, uh, the one that is now sitting in heaven at the right hand of God. What? I had to wrestle with that with, with Lazarus. Okay. You know, uh, Jesus is the first one resurrected. Lazarus, yep. others, but it means the first first fruits of the of the okay. new resurrection. Right, so mm -hmm. new body. Yes. Lazarus died. Yes, he did. He did. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's 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 very good. So he is the one that's resurrected the first fruits, the highest, um, and that's that's a good thing. And we appreciate the fact that we have a savior who is exalted like that. And I appreciate John, I mean Paul, taking the time to open these things up. Instead of being a series of emanations descending from a long line of spirits, he is the preeminent inheritor of all creation. He's born as a man into this world, but he is the highest of the high. He is our blessed Lord and our blessed Savior. It is a mystery. It is not easy to be able to logically explain the fact how God, who created everything, can limit himself to being a man and having physical needs like that. But he did. And he did not choose the easy path. The easy path was to let it go. But he is the one that if you turn to Revelation and you see the, the, the throne of the universe and one sitting on the throne and he has a, a scroll which is the title deed of the earth and the cry goes out, who can take this scroll and write the wrong, the humiliation, the injustices that have gone on here and the robbing of God of his honor and of his person and of his sovereignty and it has been this usurpation uh, where Satan has usurped, that's the mispronunciation, but Satan has usurped his, his authority and his, his power. And uh, who can take that back? And uh, the, the answer went, uh, first, no one in heaven or on earth, on earth was found worthy. John wept bitterly because he saw this is such a miscarriage of truth and of justice. This is the place where God Almighty has been threatened and his throne is shaken and it's beyond calculation. How can we do that? And then all of a sudden, one of the angels tells John, behold the lion from the tribe of Judah, he's overcome. He is worthy. And that's, that's what he is here. He is worthy to take back the scroll, to open the scroll, to take the scroll and to open it, to break the seals and to reclaim it. And he will. And we were very, I'm very happy for that. We can't lose. If we're in Christ, we're on the winning side, and He is the sovereign and the Lord. Let me close in prayer, and then uh, we get ready to go. Father in heaven, thank you for, for Jesus. If you had not chosen us and written our names down in your book, we would be forever lost. The scripture is clear. Uh, all are turned aside, together become useless as none that seek you. That means us as well. The scripture is clear in Ephesians 2 that um, we who are dead have no knowledge of you and uh, that we are, the natural man does not perceive and understand and grasp the things of the spirit. But the verse goes on to say, you who are dead, God made alive. We understand that. We understand that we are totally dependent on you and that you, in your infinite mercy and grace and your wonderful plan, which I do not understand, have chosen us and are working. Lord, I am so thankful to you for working my heart and my life. There are so many things that are messed up that need your daily moment, hourly intrusion and work. And I'm so glad that you do that. And I pray that you'll do it in such a way that it will glorify the Savior and that people can see that that I'm making progress and that people will know that Jesus Christ is alive and he's reigning here and he's working here and he's, he's sovereign. Help us to live in a way that depends on you and trusts you and also glorifies you. 
Thank you for our blessed Lord and for his goodness to us. And thank you for the privilege that we have of bumbling around in a few moments, talking about him and living uh, for him and seeking to honor and serve him for the rest of eternity. We have an unbelievable hope in Christ. Thank you for that. And thank you for him. We ask your blessing upon the remainder of this day. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.